0: Friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoigne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media. And in today's episode, we'll get into the Metropolitan Opera's offer of paychecks for its employees if their unions agree to long term pay cuts, which raised many an eyebrow. We will talk about Nutcracker in the time of COVID, you know, how the pandemic has forced companies to cancel or completely rethink their Nutcracker productions and what that is meaning financially and artistically. We will discuss how the pandemic might move dance out of major cities and what the effects of that kind of shift could be. And then we'll have our interview with Alice Shepard, the disabled dancer and choreographer who is challenging conventional understandings of disabled and dancing bodies. We are really eager for you to hear from her. On a related note, before we start the show, we wanted to say that we'll be providing full transcripts of this episode and all future episodes on our website. Accessibility is an integral part of Alice's work, and it's also a part of our mission and values here at Dance Media to make sure that all of our content can be accessed by people of all abilities and disabilities. So from here out, you can find transcripts linked in the episode description and also at thedanceedit.com slash podcast. Now it's time for our weekly Dance Headline Rundown, and we're playing a bit of catch up after a week off from newsy discussions, so we have a lot to talk about. Let's get right into it.
1: Okay, so American Ballet Theater has canceled its 2021 spring season at the Metropolitan Opera House, which was slated to begin in June, citing the ongoing pandemic and recent surge in cases, which they determined made staging a full slate of indoor performances in New York City unfeasible. The company is working on plans to perform outdoors throughout the U.S. this spring before returning to New York City in the summer. Details on that are still to come.
2: The recent coronavirus surge in Hong Kong has been partially linked to dance clubs where wealthy female students take lessons from young male instructors.
1: Uh, In cheerier news, the New York Dance and Performance Awards, better known as the Bessies, announced this year's nominees. Now, as previously announced, they've decided to forego declaring winners this year out of respect for the artists who are unable to stage their shows due to the pandemic. But each nominee will receive the traditional $500 honorarium and be recognized during a virtual ceremony taking place December 14th. as always a wonderfully varied group i always feel like the bessies exist to remind us that like no matter how closely you follow the new york city dance scene there's always something brilliant happening that you just don't know about that you missed
2: yeah always and Dancing with the Stars has a new winner. Um, former bachelorette Caitlin Bristow and her partner Artem Jake Vincev took home the Mirrorball trophy for the show's 29th season. The winning dances were a repeat of their Argentine tango to Toxic by Britney Spears, whose birthday is today, and a <laughs> dance to Sparkling Diamonds from Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge and Britney?
1: What? I know.
0: And Dancing with the Stars, congratulations, made it through a whole season with Nary a COVID outbreak.
1: Impressive. <laughs> really impressive. Uh, some more good news out of Pacific Northwest Ballet, which uh, was announced during the company's recent virtual gala. Dylan Wald and Angelica Generosa have been promoted to principal dancer, and Cecilia Eilisiu has been promoted to soloist. Congrats to all three. Yay.
2: Mm-hmm. Forbes 30 Under 30 list for 2021 is here, and it is quite dancey this year. Honorees from the dance community include the viral TikTok star, Jeliah Harmon. And speaking of TikTok, Charlie D'Amelio is on the list. Uh, She recently made TikTok history by becoming the first user to reach 100 million followers. Rising pop star Tate McRae, who gained fame through So You Think You Can Dance, nabbed a spot as well. And last, but certainly not least, is Ariana DeBose, our December cover star over at Dance Magazine. She's been crushing it from Broadway to Hollywood. She's widely known for her performance as The Bullet in Hamilton, but this month she'll play Alyssa in the film adaptation of The Prom on Netflix, and next year we will finally get to see her as Anita in Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story after the film's release was delayed due to COVID.
1: Not gonna lie, Ariana as Alyssa Green is the main thing that I'm excited about for the prom film adaptation.
0: (laughs) Which is saying a lot because there's a lot to be excited about in that adaptation. (laughs)
1: Slightly less cheery news now, Uh, Denver-based contemporary dance company Wonderbound has been forced to move to new premises after the studio space they've occupied for the last five years was vandalized. Unfortunately, that means paying rent is having to be factored back into the company's budget, their previous space was donated by the building's owners. But they are hoping to be able to premiere their new holiday show, Winterland, a discotheque cabaret, originally slated for this month in January, local COVID-19 restrictions allowing. Uh, And if you're able to support, uh, this is definitely a company that is really hurting and could use a little help right now.
2: The dance world lost four towering figures recently, Uh, Canadian modern dance pioneer Patricia Beatty, the former Limon star and teacher Betty Jones, world-renowned dance accompanist and author Harriet Cavalli, and former New York City Ballet star Sarah Leland.
1: And shockwaves were felt in the tap community at the death of master teacher Greg Russell at the age of 48. Russell was an Emmy-nominated choreographer whose resume was chock-full of pop culture icons and who was beloved for his infectious, energetic teaching style. As Jason Samuel Smith put it in a tribute on Instagram, Russell was optimism personified. Uh, He is survived by his wife and young daughter, and there are a couple of GoFundMes uh, currently ongoing to help support them.
0: Yes, we will link to those in the episode description. He reached so many, so many people as a dancer, as a choreographer, but especially as a teacher. And we should remember, too, as a teacher of not just tap, he actually taught in a variety of styles. He, He could seemingly do anything. He'll be dearly missed. So in our next segment, we're going to get into a piece of news that came out a little more than a week ago now, but it's major enough that we wanted to sort of circle back to it in this episode. The Metropolitan Opera's employees, including its dancers, have been furloughed without pay since April, but the Mets administration recently said they would start offering many of those employees up to $1,500 a week for the duration of the pandemic on the condition that their unions agree to longer-term pay cuts. So in this proposed deal, employees would have to sign new contracts, reducing their take-home pay by 30%, and then half of that cut would be restored once the Met's box office returns to its pre-pandemic levels. I mean, these are desperate times for arts organizations of all sizes. Obviously, the Met has not been spared the effects of the pandemic, but this proposed compromise rings all kinds of alarm bells. Like, using COVID to union bust? Is this really
2: what it looks like it is? Hashtag 2020. Um, This, of course, can easily come across as an attempt to take advantage of an incredibly unfortunate situation to cover deeper problems. Uh, The Met was already in a somewhat strained financial position before the pandemic. The New York Times reported in November of last year that the opera had run uh, minor deficits for the previous two years, and that S&P had found its endowment to be low for an organization of its scope and reduced its outlook from stable to negative. And even before COVID, the Met earned less than a third of its $300 million annual budget through the box office, which made it overly reliant on donors. If the unions accept the proposed deal, the short-term pay for workers would only amount to 70% of their base salaries, and, as you said, Margaret, would be capped at $1,500 a week, which is challenging enough, The fact that med employees are being offered what will amount to a 15% pay cut after the box office returns to pre-pandemic levels, in exchange for not much more than a livable wage in a highly expensive city, in the wake of an economic and public health disaster, and after months of furlough sounds extremely questionable to say the least.
1: Essentially, what is being asked to happen is if you want to keep working, you have to bear the burden of this budget shortfall and saying that to the artists, the artists who are the ones who are making the work that is the whole reason for this organization's existence. Mm -hmm. That's not cool. And also, I think dancing for operas um, is one of those concert gigs that actually pays really quite well in the dance world because it is unionized. Mm You know, like, I know a lot of dancers who are very much in the experimental scene, but who will take opera gigs when they get them. And that's what pays the bills. So the idea of making, like, the calculus you have to do to live as a dancer in New York City, making that even more unlivable in the way that this proposal will is really not cool at all.
0: Yeah, it's not a great look. And, and as Lydia noted, the idea that even once they are back, to pre-pandemic box office levels, you're still fifteen percent down from where you started. Eek.
1: And I think it's and then I think it's also interesting that again, only a third of their budget comes from box office. Mm-hmm. So hello, the donors who make up the other two thirds of that. Um, would you like to actually fund the artists? Exactly. Step hello. Up
0: to the plate. Yep. So in our next segment, we're going to talk a little about the Nutcracker, which It's not surprising. It's December. This is a dance podcast. But this year, everything Nutcracker is so much more complicated. And Dance Magazine just published two thought-provoking COVID Nutcracker stories. The first talks in a bigger picture sense about the effects of the pandemic on the whole Nutcracker industry. Because going without a traditional Nutcracker run was essentially unthinkable for most ballet companies previously. So when they were forced to abandon their traditional productions, how did they end up thinking about the unthinkable? And then many companies' COVID nutcracker solutions involve broadcasting footage of a previous year's production. And in the second Dance Magazine piece, um, Phil Chan of Final Bow for Yellowface talks about what those companies can do if that footage includes offensive racial caricatures in the second act. What responsible actions should companies take in that scenario?
1: Yeah. So starting with the first of those two pieces, uh, Dance Magazine took a pretty broad look at what does a year of nutcracker Cracker even mean? Um, so looking at it from a budgetary standpoint, which, as Miko Nissenen, the artistic director of Boston Ballet, put it, Everything else loses money.
2: According to a Dance USA survey, it brings in on average 48% of total performance revenue for a year, or an average of $2.8 million in ticket sales. And that money enables companies to experiment with more cutting edge work. So the long-term financial and artistic implications of a Nutcracker-less season are dire, as I believe we've discussed on previous episodes. I think it's easy to be
1: jaded about Nutcracker, but it does provide opportunities For um, so many up-and-coming company members to show their mettle, to step into new roles, to step into featured roles, it allows students who are looking to go professional opportunities to perform alongside them, or even students who aren't looking to go professional to get performing experience. For freelance dancers, it allows them to pad their income in December by doing guesting performances.
0: It's also, sorry to interrupt you. It's also important to the wider community. I mean, Nutcracker is the way that many people first discover ballet or discover dance entirely, and you don't want to cut off that entry point.
1: Yeah. And then also just looking at what it means to companies and to communities, you know, looking at Ballet West, which does Lou Christensen's Nutcracker, the oldest Nutcracker in America, talking to Julie Kent at the Washington Ballet, who was actually her American ballet theater career started whenever they needed extra people in the core. And she took time off of high school to go and dance with them when she was 16. It's a really key part of the ballet ecosystem. And so the question has now become, what do we do in this year when everything has been turned upside down and traditional
2: nutcrackers are out the window? Yeah. This season, companies have been forced to get even more creative than usual about these productions, adopting everything from small, socially distanced performances with dancers who work together in pods to streaming past performances. And on the topic of streaming, I think I can speak for all of us when I say please read Phil's piece. Uh, To sum it up, he suggests dealing with harmful, outdated nutcracker footage by acknowledging what's problematic about it, as well as the impact of racial caricature encouraging conversation, demonstrating how you're making positive changes in this area. But I do want to point out this one quote that resonated with me. Showing an outdated Nutcracker without context will give a first impression that our world is backwards and racist and therefore not worthy of further investment.
0: Yeah. One of the reasons that the Nutcracker is the ideal production to introduce the idea of evolving a ballet to keep up with the times, whether that be by eliminating Terrible racial stereotypes or by doing a more complete overhaul the way some of these companies have been forced to do this year since they can't mount traditional productions. The Nutcracker is a great vehicle for that because it's embedded enough in the cultural consciousness to be flexible because of its mainstream appeal it can absorb changes and updates and the audience will still kind of come along with you they'll still understand the core references the music and the story and the spirit of the whole thing
1: and it's also very bits and piecesy like there's so many divertissements so you can really like okay if this one is the one that's the issue we can grab that and we can edit that and we can change that and we can evolve it without having to just throw everything out necessarily right
0: Oh, I was trying to come up with a good baby in the bathwater analogy that was Nutcracker specific and I couldn't do it fast enough. (laughs) Don't don't throw out the Nutcracker. No, I'm not going to try. But by the way, a great resource if you do want to get a better sense of the ways U.S. companies are approaching Nutcracker this year is the Dance Data Project's Nutcracker status updates page. Just a full rundown of what everybody is actually doing. Um, And we'll include a link to that in the episode description.
1: Which as a news editor, I can tell you it's changing constantly.
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah. So now we want to address another think piece that Dance Magazine published recently, and this one asks whether the pandemic is effectively decentralizing dance, if it's shifting it away from bigger cities. Because a lot of former city-dwelling dancers have relocated in the period since theaters shut down, and many of them might not be able to or might not want to return to the major hubs after COVID subsides. So what would that mean for the dance industry? Like, Would decentralization necessarily be a bad thing, or do smaller cities and towns have the infrastructure and the audience to support dance companies? There's a lot to unpack in this story.
1: Yeah, and I think it's fair to argue that at this point, it's still too soon to really say. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we're going to be able to really properly answer this question, did it or did it not, for at least another couple of years. And I think the next several months, uh, how the pandemic response goes, how things with vaccines, et cetera, pan out, how much longer we're in this unknown state, I think that's going to be informing a lot of what ultimately happens. But- Looking at the story, it ended up being rather New York City focused. And one of the things that was mentioned in it is that Dance NYC, which is a local service organization, started collecting data on how COVID-19 was impacting the landscape. And some of the respondents to the surveys they were doing uh, volunteered the information about whether or not they were relocating from the city. And in that Initial survey back in March, 7% said that they had relocated to stay with family and, quote, escape the virus. And additional respondents stated that they were considering leaving. Um, as is also pointed out in the story, in addition to that, as we all very well know, like dance work largely dried up in the spring here in New York City. Also, a lot of the gigs that dancers use to pay the bills dried up. Catering's mm-hmm. a no go. You know anything retail industry, all these side hustles also dried up. So the reality is, uh, without some sort of economic intervention, being a dancer in a place like New York City right now is economically unfeasible. And uh, it was pointed out that a lot of dancers might end up changing professions simply because they have to eat. But the more positive potential is, okay, so let's say Looking at all of that, dancers decide, I'm going to move back to my hometown, which might not be one of these major cities, might not be a major dance hub, but probably has some dance presence. What happens if a lot of that happens? Like, what is that going to do to the dance field if we diffuse the expertise uh, into a lot of different places? Will we start seeing new wellsprings of talent and creativity? Will we start hearing from places that we don't necessarily think of as being hotbeds for dance? Now, a lot of infrastructure has to come into place, and there still is the issue of how do we make sure that dancers can actually afford to live? But it is definitely a possibility that is intriguing,
2: I can sort of picture dance staying somewhat the same as it is now in the sense of dance happening across the US with the most prestigious opportunities still being concentrated in a few major cities because in the concert dance world I think dancers will still want to go to big name companies that are likely to survive the pandemic. But I wondered whether we'll see more dancers finding it advantageous to move to smaller, more far-flung regions and maybe traveling farther for specific jobs, maybe like in the commercial world where it's a little bit more gig-based.
0: I think that was a point that was made in the story too. It's that spreading out the dance wealth, it's not going to actually hurt these major dance hubs in all likelihood. People are never going to stop coming to New York, coming to Los Angeles. It's just going to spread more talent around to more places in a way that some see as actually an ideal to aspire to, to bring more world-class dance out into smaller communities. A lot of potential in that kind of shift. Anyway, a lot of interesting ideas to consider, and as Courtney noted, a lot to sort of keep tabs on, especially once the dance world begins to reopen post-pandemic. It's going to take a while for us to really see what's what's going on here. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll have our interview with Alice Shepard. Stay tuned. Welcome back dance friends our guest on the podcast today is Alice Shepard, the disabled dancer and Bessie award winning choreographer, who is a leader in the disability arts community. Alice was a member of access dance company for several years and has collaborated with numerous other companies as an independent artist. And in 2016, Alice founded Kinetic Light, which is a project-based ensemble of disabled artists. It's Alice, Laurel Lawson, Michael Mag, and now also Jaron Herman. And they explore the intersections of disability, dance, design, identity, and technology. And Alice also recently became one of the first Disability Futures Fellows. That's a new fellowship that aims to increase the visibility and elevate the voices of disabled creative practitioners. So welcome, Alice. Thank you for joining on the podcast today.
3: Hello. Hello. Hello, Margaret. Thank you for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to be talking with you. And hi, everyone out there.
0: Would you start by telling our listenership the story of how you entered the dance world? Because you started out as a medieval history professor. Is that right?
3: Almost. I was a, um, a professor of medieval literatures and language um, meaning that I spent a lot of time thinking about origins of words and Beowulf, those (laughs) things. Yeah. Um, But it's a magic world to exist in. And I started there. Um, In 2003, I had, you know, I was finding my way into disabled life and went to a conference on disability studies in the university, held by the MLA at Emory University. And I think I don't really know what I was doing there, except that um, I thought it was necessary to go. I didn't know what I would find. And when I got there, you know, I, I recognized that I was out of my depth. I was so out of my depth. I was, and then, and over the course of the three days or four days, or whatever it was, I... I had these transformative life experiences, and one of which was seeing Homer Avila dance. Um, I had wondered how a dance performance was going to happen uh, when I learned that the dancer was the figure I had seen whopping around on crutches. I, I didn't know how that was going to happen. Um, and then um, Simi Linton asked if I would read text for Homer to dance to, and I was like, sure, I'll do that. Um, and I did and he danced and I don't know I mean I, every time I tell the story I, I still recognize how much I'm still not finding the words I mean sometimes you just he was just it was gut-wrenching soul-searing and in magic and yeah it was all of those things he danced he left nothing behind but I caught up with him in the bar afterwards um you know, talked for a couple of hours about disability and dance and aesthetics and integrity and work and what these things looked like. And I found I had strong beliefs about what disability can be in the arts. And he did, too. And then at the end of the night, um, a group of us were there and had been in and out of the conversation. And he dared them to take a dance class, turned around, dared me to take a dance class. I said, yes. Um... And then six weeks later, he was dead. And um, I wanted to honor that there. But then I was like, well, how do you learn to dance Um, as a disabled artist? And found that where I was, I couldn't take dance class and didn't really know how to execute or operationalize that. Um, And then I saw uh, a performance in the Bay Area by light motion at, and also by axis. And I was like, that's it. That is it. I can do that. I want to do that. And so I found a studio that was inaccessible and, um, and I tried to take a dance class there and the, and the the teacher said, well, you can't do anything, but maybe you can just get the port right. And I was like, okay, but I tried, and then I saw a flyer for a class by Axis, um, and I signed myself up, and there I was. That was it. I got started, um, and I never wanted to stop. <laughs> and you went
0: on to have this extraordinary career as a as a performer. And then can you talk a little about, I mean, I don't mean to fast forward through a, a lot of your, your history as a dancer, but about the origins of kinetic light specifically about how it it came into being and, and how you would describe its vision and its mission.
3: All right let's speak to, let's begin with the origin story for Connecticut. Um, so we got started we got started because I met Michael on a panel and I was like, I don't really agree with this guy's opinions. And then I met Michael again on a second panel like a couple of months later i was like oh this guy's really interesting and we got into these conversations and i was like oh we really want to make work together and then laurel and i had known each other over the course of years um you know through internet connections um and i'd actually been down to work with four radius in a guest artist capacity and it had been fun and i was like oh yeah and then um he emailed michael and said you know Let's make this happen. Here's an idea for us to make it happen. And then I was like, mm, Michael, we need another dancer. And so I was like, emailed Laura. I was like, I have an idea. We're going to do this. And so eventually, we were just three people trying to get a piece made and get a piece on stage. And then I realised um, that the piece was big and we would need money. And so Kinetic Light was really a. We didn't start to make a company or to make a thing happen. We just started because we needed a name for the group and a way to get the the work on stage. And then it, it, it just grew. Um, Over the past three and a half, four years, you know, we've made a ton of work and, and in in some ways, a ton of work. And and in other ways, not very much work. And in other ways, uh, an incredible amount of things have happened. And yeah, we've, found ourselves in a place where the company has a a mission um, and a vision for how disability and arts and access go together, where we've built an environment for ourselves to work with, a philosophy of working um, in disability arts, where the work that we have accomplished together is both incredible in itself. And also, it. I look at it and I'm like, this is just the beginning. We have so much more work to do. Um, yeah, we. You catching us at a moment of of both looking backwards and forwards in our time together, and um, recognizing all of the folks who have got us to this point, and dreaming out the future.
0: Speaking of looking to the future. Congratulations on the Disability Futures Fellowship. Can you, can you talk a little about how this fellowship addresses some of the problems you've seen in the funding landscape?
3: Yeah, okay. So I think one of the questions is, disabled artists have always made work, be it dancers or whatever, district, we have always made work. That work has not been recognized as fundable Um, Work has not been recognised as fundable, and in the dance world, um, what has the there's been a we have 40 years, depending on how you count, of practice, but it is mainly company practice. So, in addition to company practice, you also want independent artist practice, and the funding. Funding structures have not recognized that. It has been hard enough for the companies to find home. That has been a tremendous battle. And without the work that the companies have done, there there wouldn't be an independent artist, a moment for independent artists. At the same time, we cannot fund only companies. The independent artist practice also needs to be there. It's both and. Mm And so this this is one of the ways of saying, okay, we have not thought about, say, what artists. um, And we have not recognized practice in this way. We've not recognized work in this way. And now we want to attend to this, but the question is how to attend to this. And, you know, that means recognizing, you know, recognizing, Diversity of practice. It also means recognizing the impact of funding and when funding appears and when it's drawn away, Mm -hmm. um, both on the field and on the individuals. It means recognizing the social and political structures by which disabled people live um, in terms of funding not necessarily. Undercutting, removing, rending, and ineligible for other kinds of support—critical uh, life support—and um, thinking through, like, what? How do you know? How do you know what a practice is if, for forty years or more, you have not educated yourself in, you know, in the field? Like, I mean, if I were to say to you, um, could you name? disabled dancers going back 40 years.
0: No, and that's a failing on my part that, yeah, it's 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 all part of that same system that we need to fix.
3: So this is part of what the Disability Futures Fellowship does is recognize practice that is existing and being, being worked through um, on a number of different ways in a different way and supporting artists um, across a diversity of practices and a d- diversity of ways of making work And, you know, some some are long standing practices and some are shorter standing practices. I don't like emerging established mid career kind of labels, but, you know, so the fellowship is recognizing all of that. And I believe it is a transformative way to look at disability arts, um, which is where I place kinetic light and my own practice. Mm
0: One of the reasons that we are talking right now is that your work, Descent, has its online premiere. Actually, the day this, this episode is premiering, December 3rd. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that work, how that came to be? And I want to talk especially about its use of the ramp as an aesthetic.
3: This has been part of the political work of Descent and part of the, the political work that – an aesthetic work of kinetic light um, – so we are not a physically integrated dance company. Um, the kinetic light is led by disabled artists. Uh, and a lot of our work, most of our work has, has no normative, non-disabled body or mind as the reference point. So um, there's a shorthand. We could say forest bias. Um, uh, but we could also say that, um, and this is a definition that I am currently tossing around is the disability arts, as I understand it, this is not a field wide definition, this is my personal definition. Disability arts features work made by disabled artists um, that features disabled artists that is um, intersectional, rooted in the intersectional histories of disabled people, BIPOC disabled people, queer, trans, disabled people, that there's an intersectionality in the work and in the, in the thinking of art, disability arts. So it features disabled artists, is made by disabled artists, and is rooted in the intersectional histories, cultures, and aesthetics and politics of disabled people. So it's very much a 360 look at. at the world that disability arts can um, exist in and shape. Within that world, um, access is critical. And access is not a retroactive accommodation. It's not a service, not a burden. It's a creative force in the, in the work itself. And um, it is relational. And it, it is exactly as the disability justice leaders have articulated it. It is relational. It is a promise and it's a culture, a way of moving to be with each other. All of that said, that is how we get to the ramp, right? Now, if you imagine ramps in your world, like you see ramps at the size of buildings, you know, or the back of buildings, and they're deeply ugly they're things. Ugly, yeah. Yeah, like, right. So we know, right? We remember Brown v. Board of Education. We know that separate is never equal there was this whole hullabaloo um, in New York when people realized there were gonna be rich doors and poor doors. But we continue to construct ramps and separate entrances for disabled people, right? Because they are compliant with the law or not. And the thing about it is that, that prior to a ramp becoming an access device, ramps were gorgeous architectural features. Like all through the early 20th century, ramps were beautiful. Um, in galleries and museums and buildings and houses. Um, yeah. So as soon as they become access devices, they become ugly and functional and to the bottom of the building. And so um, the descent ramp actually asks, what is pleasure? What is movement pleasure? What is this thing when it is a work of art, a sculpture? What is this thing when it is not just a slope that gets you into a building, but is a dance partner that generates new movement, that that helps you build a new world, that, that pushes the the kinds of expression of, of, from from real, real movement that catches and enhances and deepens wheeled potential. That's what the ramp is. Um, and so when Alejandra Ospina saw it in New York, she called it ramp porn. It is sexy. It it is what ramps should be. It is inviting. It is mysterious. It is. Why? Why isn't that the case everywhere? Mm -hmm. That's the ramp. It's funny because even the
0: ugly, like just there to meet the code access ramps, Uh, I remember my daughter, when she was a little bit younger, she would see them and say, oh, mommy, this building has a slide. Can we go down the slide? Mm -hmm. And she found this joy in running down the ramp that I remember being slightly embarrassed by at the time. And now I'm more embarrassed at my own embarrassment, at the sense that a ramp could be a source of pleasure. It should be. Yeah.
3: You should design for pleasure. You should design for um maximum expression of of you know in dance we're saying oh the floor is our first partner but like what if the floor really is not an invisible partner but the uh, an active partner and you know and we we found this you know we would be on this ramp for hours at a time being like we could just do this and the ramp would just say nope you can't do that it would pitch us out and it would like turn us over and we'd try this incredible video for uh hours on end on us trying and trying and trying to nail this one move that just should have worked theoretically but did not because the ramp wouldn't allow it and the ramp it just reversed all the rules like you know when you're coming down a curve and you you don't lean into the curve you lean away from the curve but no this ramp makes you want to lean into the curve and if you don't lean into the curve it pitches you out and you know so the ramp we the ramp had its own rules of of, of engagement you know
0: like any dance partner yeah Yeah. Um, Can you talk a little too about how you adapted Descent for this online presentation? Too did that process present challenges? Present opportunities? A little of both. Both. I mean,
3: we did not film Descent as a film, right? Mm -hmm. So if we had been able to film Descent, we would have done something entirely different. Um, You know, this was this is performance footage. On the other hand, it's a five-camera TV shoot performance footage. So um, we are able to be, uh, create the world of the um, Andromeda in some really, really fantastic angles. I mean, the things that we we know as artists that are happening back there—you know—suddenly you get to see them. Um, and you know, there's—I um, can't give you—I I won't give that away—but there are some incredible angles. We were also able to work with um, Shana Guraya, who is a film editor on the West Coast. Um, and she was able to take the full performance footage and um, you know, edit and, you know, edit in some of ways that just picked up the projections and some of the video of the work that's already present. And so it's um, it's an interesting it's a new genre. It's 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 shot, you know, it is not shot intentionally as a film but it is rendered as a film from performance footage it's sort of in between the gaps and it's I think um, it is a wonderful invitation to the work um, and incredibly beautiful visually it is a visual feast which then um, sends us to the next question as well we do access so what is a visual feast if you are listening to it and you know, one of the things that Kinetic Light has been doing is thinking about the practice of audio description. And so for this, uh, we, you know, in live performance, we um, we have uh, Audemance and some specially developed content for that. Now Audimants is an app that in, enables the blind or non-visual user to listen to dance and, um, and to listen to it in a really sort of revolutionary way. Um, this is not just description of the work like what happens we offer five six different ways it does to to encounter the work as a soundscape as poetry as a poetry cycle there's description of the light the description of the projections description of the movement there's a dramatic dialogue and we sonified the dance so you can actually listen to the bumps and the banks and the squeaks and the and we took all of that content and um connected with andy slater who's a sound editor in chicago and said okay we are going to make this accessible for an online performance um what does that look like and so andy took all of that content and composed a in a, a new sound design and we commissioned new description um, from cheryl green and so we have i mean you know an experience that is deeply intimate and deeply personal, um, that you can listen to the film. But we should point out that the uh, one of the things that is interesting about this work is this is made in large part for expert listeners. And I think this is something that the Zoom culture has revealed, is that some people are expert listeners and other people are not. Um, and blind and non-visual listening cultures are very different from sighted listening cultures. And so we've been working with blind and non-visual folks to make work that resonates within that culture. Um, and that's our intended audience. When sighted audience members, they, you know, pick it up, there's content they're eager to explore, but it's not centered around sightedness. And so if you are not an expert listener, what we get is, this is overwhelming, this is too much. No one could possibly listen to this. If we get a blind listener who is deeply rooted in culture, and we get, oh, you have five tracks? Oh, we can listen to that. This is is the first time someone has created art for us instead of just telling us what is happening on stage. Mm -hmm. So um, with that caveat, um, (laughs) I would say that there are going to be two versions of Descent, three versions of Descent streaming. One is the film for which there will be captions for the sound. So, you can have the film with captions or no captions. There is a mono track audio description, which is by Cheryl, and that is a beautiful poetic prose rendering of the dance and text. And one is uh, this multi polyphonic um, sonic installation of the work.
0: Can you talk a little? You touched on before the fact that intersectionality is central to the mission of kinetic light and also to dissent as a work. And it's one of those ideas that the dance community is now very belatedly beginning to think about in a more active way, um, particularly during this moment of, of racial reckoning that's been happening over the past few months. So can you talk a little more about how you apply intersectional thinking in your work broadly and how it shapes dissent in particular? You know,
3: can I come back on the question slightly? Yes, please. Um, without, with deepest respect, this isn't intersectional thinking, um, <laughs> right? We don't apply intersectional thinking um, because, you know, what what would that mean? Um, the, the worlds that we are building on stage and in sound and in visuals are necessarily intersectional because the artists bring that with us it's not an application from top down it's a recognition that that the fullness these these are fullnesses that have been there Mm -hmm. that have been obscured or erased or ignored by um by mainstream worlds but it's not an application of something new this is this is the thing this is it this is the center for us so in dissent you know we're seeing a you know, <laughs> you know, this is what I would say, like my two sentence answer to this is, Descent is an interracial love story between two disabled women um, in which the mythological figures of, of Venus and Andromeda are both, um, we would say crypt, meaning we spent a long time thinking through the disability aspects and aesthetics in uh, Auguste Rodin's work and also racially recuperated insofar as we went back and figured out why and how Andromeda, who is Ethiopian in the original myth, is rendered uh, all the way through white Western period after the fifth century, and she's rendered as white. And so what does it mean to actually attend to that origin?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It's not application, it's, it's- Just in there. It's, it's just, it's, yeah, it's not like we went, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right.
0: I, I, I'm, I'm wondering how you feel about Again, we were talking before we started recording about the fact that Mm. attention for the disability arts community seems to come in waves. Mm. And how do you feel about that and about the attention that, and the nature of the attention that that community is getting at the moment?
3: Yeah, you know, um, Hmm. I think this is a deeply complicated time. So let's, I mean, you refer to it as a racial reckoning. And I think you can't do a racial reckoning without also doing a disability reckoning. Mm-hmm. And that your disability reckoning does not undermine or detract from your racial reckoning. And that you can't do a disability reckoning without also doing a race reckoning.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And that your race reckoning does not undertract and cut and detract from your disability reckoning. These things are embedded and necessary together and that's just work that people have to do I am very scared that this is going to be a checkbox thing we've programmed our black artists we've programmed our queer artists we've got one disabled artist check done Mm -hmm. that's not it that's not it the work here is addressing the injustices it is going back you can't change the past but you can look at what did and didn't happen in the past and you can address that to make a better future. Are people ready to do that? Um, And and that means more than putting people on the stage or more than putting people, you know, on magazine covers. You know, if you are, if your argument is that you don't know of a single disabled artist whose work you think is good enough for your stage, you should then take that programming money and nurture an artist, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: you know? Build the world that you want. Don't walk away from it. Build the world that you want. Address, Use the time, use the money to build a better future. Take it apart. Don't just walk away from, that, from what you perceive as absence. It's not absence. It's building, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: This isn't your job. But can you speak to some specific changes? And you've already laid out a few that need to be made most urgently by dance companies and organizations as they work toward accessibility and equity? What are the the
3: biggest problems? I have questions. So I don't actually know how to answer that question, but I have questions. Um, So people are getting accustomed to on the Zoom world to providing description, a self description. Is that actually an accessible description or are you in a routine performance in the same way you are making a routine performance of a land acknowledgement? Mm-hmm. If you have CART or an ASL interpreter, is that a commitment to accessibility or does that stop when you hang up the Zoom call? If someone shows up to your online class, are you prepared to teach them accessibly? Um, and, and that's a really big one, right? Because if your argument is that disabled dancers aren't ready, or disabled artists aren't ready, then how are you addressing that? If you are a dance artist or a dance company, 25% of the audience, the, 25%, according to the CDC, of the American population identifies as having a disability in some way. What are you doing to reach 25% of your audience? I mean, and, and, and if you're a venue, what are you doing? You know, it's not just about having the access ramp. It's not just about, um, you know, just, just, to, just to look at big venues for a second. Um, it's not just about having an access ramp and knowing that you could pull the seat. It's about, does the seat, is the seat available? Are you doing ASL interpretation? Okay, you're doing ASL interpretation. Um, but, but one night you're offering it, I can't come. Does that mean I don't see the show? Um, I only found out about the show four days ago. Um, or a week ago, but you won't um, hire an ASL interpreter because I didn't give you two weeks' notice. Who gives two weeks' notice to go to a show, you know? Um, If you can put captions for lyrics on the seat of every chair at an opera, you can put captions for seat. you know Mm -hmm. and I mean? You can put a caption box at the side of a theater. What are you doing? And if you're an independent dance artist, Yeah, I know. Access costs money. But there is a way in which the way your work gets presented is also part of your job. Like you don't necessarily want to hand over access to some service provider who's going to make it ugly and not be what you want. The work of access is all of our jobs. It doesn't just happen. Um, We all have to work at it. And, and, and have these conversations. Venues and presenters can't foist it off onto artists. Artists, you shouldn't be trusting the venue to, to do it. It's, it's got to be from the top. We, we just have to take the world apart and start again mm-hmm. um, and meet each other in these conversations. And someone out there has to fund it.
0: I mean, it's, it's of course, part of our job as a media organization as well to do this work and we are figuring it out slowly.
3: My My question really is, there's a leadership. This is a leadership question, you know. It's not enough for anyone out there to put me or anyone else or on the cover to invite us to give a talk and then to record it and stick it in the archive. Because who are you talking to? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a disabled student on campus comes to the archive and finds that there was a talk given by a disabled artist, or a cover, or a story, or even an image post on Instagram, and finds that inaccessible, you know, that's beyond my level of, of uh, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have come a long way. I think everyone's come a long way. Even before I got to this position, and no, let me just back up this. I'm here right now with you, and I am able to say these things to you. But before all of that happened, you know, access was a thing, and people were doing. Some people were doing it, and they have not been recognized. And other people were not doing it, and they haven't been um, brought into the fold or called out for it. I happen to be here in this moment with you, not as an access leader or revealing this new thing, but to point out an injustice that has been true since the beginning of the internet. Um, since the beginning of dance writing and, and stories, you know, since the beginning, access has been an issue. It is only now that we're paying attention to it. And, and then the injustice, you know, the injustice has needs rectifying. And if our conversation in this moment can change the future great right. but it's not because I'm anything special it's because right now I'm in the I'm in the room with you or at least I on a zoom call with you and 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 people are listening this is long standing you know and and it shouldn't be that access and here's the last thing it shouldn't be that access is only restricted to disability content
1: mm-hmm.
3: I, mean, I can't imagine a world in which someone decides for me okay um the only content that we're gonna the media that we're gonna make accessible to you is the content that we think is relevant to you oh you're disabled you could, you're only interested in this kind of content, mm-hmm. right? Or we'll make the disability relevant content. You know, like what kind of discriminatory nonsense is that? So, the mm, role has to be taken apart and rethought. Mm-hmm. And here's the other thing that Zoom teaches us. And I feel two ways about this. There are disabled people who are requesting accommodation, captions, ASL interpreters, transcripts, audio description there are people who do not identify as being disabled who are using those surfaces, right? So what we know from years of disability activism is that access modalities, when passed into the mainstream, benefit everyone. It is the disabled activists who sometimes literally lay their lives on the line to get them, but everyone benefits. Uh, And so take the world apart and then bring it back together in an accessible way and you will be making a better world.
0: I want to thank you for your your patience with me with all of us because I'm it, I'm sure it feels like you're in the twilight zone giving the same kind of interview over and over again <laughs> but we deeply appreciate it um Ooh. and we hope that our listeners hear hear what you have to say and and I appreciate your patience with me specifically as as I learn more I really do.
3: Not at all. I mean these are You know, these are issues that are longstanding, and it's not about me at all, Um, you know.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you again for sharing with us. And please go see Kinetic Lights Descent. It's premiering online tonight, 8 p.m. It is presented by the Walker Arts Center and Northrop, the University of Minnesota. Um, The performance will be available through December 5th. Is that right? I have that right?
3: Yeah. Tonight is uh, live, and then it will be available... Uh, throughout um, those times from the third to the fifth definitely want to give you a heads up about kinetic lights offerings in access Um, we are beginning a new initiative series of workshops called always uh, for access always in all the possible ways and in this laura lawson will be teaching you to do what we do and um, getting everyone set and prepared to make their work accessible join us Yes, we'll be sure to include
0: a link for that and also links for descent information and tickets in the episode description. Thank you so much, Alice. I Really, truly appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Margaret, for this wild ride of a conversation. (laughs) And thank you, everyone, for listening.
0: The wild rides are always the best rides. (laughs) (laughs) It's not often that a 40-minute interview transforms one's worldview, but that conversation was truly transformative for me. And I hope for everyone listening too. Um, in addition to watching dissent and participating in the always workshop, please make sure to visit Alice's website, aliceshepard.com and the kinetic light website, which is kineticlight.org. And if you're wondering about accessibility in a social media context, the kinetic light social accounts are great models and also great follows. They're at kineticlightdance on Instagram and then facebook.com slash light. All right. Thanks everyone for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing.
1: Mind how you go,
2: friends. See you next week.
0: The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com.